you guys are dismissed to Children's Church. Uh, and adults, you are stuck with me. So uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Hebrews 7. Is where we're going to be. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, so if you're new here, uh, welcome. My name's Gabe. I'm one of the elders here, the primary teaching pastor. Uh, we're just glad that you're here. We've been working through the book of Hebrews now for five or six months now. Um, this is kind of our style. It's called expository preaching that, that we just want to take a book of the Bible and work our way through it slowly, methodically, so that we can fully grasp what the writer intends us to grasp. Um, so, so as you're flipping to Hebrews 7, let me ask uh, just a simple question by way of introduction. Um, what is the greatest thing in life? Just think about it for a second. What is the greatest thing in life? And if it's appropriate, you can tell someone next to you. But for you, what is the greatest thing in life? So, so I was fascinated with this. I found this survey online. So, so let me give you a couple of the answers that popped up under this question, what is the greatest thing in life? And see how many you can agree with. Um, the first one that was on this list is getting into your bed with fresh sheets. Anyone like that? All right, anyone not like that? Okay, I'm, I'm the same way. Cause then it's all like rigid and, and I just don't make the bed, just let me slide in the way it was the night before, it's perfect. Um, maybe I'm a sociopath. This, the second one, sitting by a crackling fire that warms your body through. If you don't like that one, you're at the wrong church. Um, the next one, going for a long run and feeling healthy and accomplished. Thank you, thank you. That was a ridiculous long run. Uh, listening to your favorite song, um, having a healthy and loving relationship with your parents. I don't know what that's like. This, I'm just kidding. My parents are incredible. I love my parents. Uh, the smell of freshly cut grass on a sunny day. That one is legit. Uh, my wife is not allowed to cut our grass. Uh, laughing until your ribs hurt and your eyes are streaming, but you still can't stop laughing. Anyone else like that one? Yeah. Uh, the smell of freshly baked bread. Unless you got COVID, then you're out on that one. So, so for a lot of us, I mean, we, we could keep going through the greatest thing in life, the greatest thing in life, but, but let me just point maybe one intention out of this list. And the list was 50 something and they were all centered around one thing. The greatest thing in life was about you. It's about what made you feel happy, what brought greatness to you. None of them were able to see something outside of themselves and recognize greatness somewhere else. See, we've been in this um, path for quite a long time that culture says greatness is all about you. Greatness is how you define it. Uh, you're great, you're the best, you do whatever you need to do to make yourself feel great about yourself. And so in light of that, we, we've really redefined what greatness is, or, or maybe we swing the pendulum the other way. Uh, fear really teaches us what greatness is, right? Because whatever we're afraid of, in the moment we find a system that works or a thing that fixes that one problem, whether it's the right solution or not, we, we naturally say, well, that's the greatest thing ever. Uh, even if that way is gonna lead to death, as Proverbs would tell us, we naturally jump onto, well, that thing is great because it fixed a problem without really diving into, is that the best solution for that problem? 
So, so we have to stop for a minute and zoom out and go, man, greatness is really turned into sub, a subjective phrase. It's not quite objective anymore. And greatness is really defined by what we say it is. And so as we're looking into the text this morning, um, we, we see the major theme of Hebrews is Jesus is greater than. Jesus is greater than this. Jesus is greater than that. And the reality, I think the hard time that we're going to have is because we gauge greatness on how it makes us feel. So if Jesus makes me feel good, then Jesus is great. If Jesus makes me feel good like the grass that I just mowed, then I feel great about it. If Jesus just makes me feel good like the smell of the warm bread coming out of the oven. So, so we gauge Jesus' greatness on how it makes us feel. And this morning, the author is really going to zoom in and say, no, no, no. Jesus is great regardless of how it makes you feel. Jesus is the greatest regardless of the situations, the circumstances. Jesus is the greatest one that's ever lived. And the way that he goes about that is we're kind of in this three-part series. Chapter 7, we've split up into three parts. Um, and, and they really teach based on the order of Melchizedek. So, so here's what's going to happen. That most of the time, the sermons that we have are more standalone. So, so I'm going to finish the sermon at about 12.30, 1 o'clock. Uh, and then we can go home and we can, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to be that long. Um, but I appreciate how no one like gasped. That was good. So I might preach that long. Uh, and then we go home and we can talk about this one sermon. But, but raise your hand real quick if you're a part of a family group. All right, so did anyone notice this week in family group, the conversation was just a little strange. We just didn't really know how to land the plane with this specific text. And that's because we really need to see this as the entirety of chapter seven. So, so this is almost like uh, me just, I'm, I'm pulling out the baseball this morning, right? And then next week, I'm gonna set the baseball on the T. It's part B of the sermon. And then the next week, we actually get to stand up and swing for the fences. Uh, and Stephen Partridge gets to do that. So I'm gonna do all the labor of setting up for Stephen. So you're welcome, Stephen. Uh, so I'm going to be setting the stage for the next couple of weeks, but, but the idea, what we need to keep listening to and thinking through the lenses of Jesus's greatness. Why is Jesus this great? And we are going to be studying through the lenses and through the thoughts of Melchizedek. So I mentioned Hebrews 7, but real quick, go to Hebrews 5. Uh, because back in November, when we were at Hebrews 5, we read about Melchizedek. I said, hey, I'm not going to go into much detail now. Just hold the phone. We'll get there. And today is us getting there. So let's read Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, just to kind of get understood uh, on Melchizedek and the setting that we're in. So Hebrews 5, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he's done for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when God, called by God, just as Aaron was, verse five. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son today, I have begotten you. And in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him, to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. 
And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So twice we see the preacher here, the writer, the author of Hebrews, going back and quoting Psalm 110.4, right? So Melchizedek is this really guy, this, this man that wasn't mentioned a lot in Scripture, really only three times. The book of Hebrews, Psalm 110.4, and we're also going to see in Genesis 14. So if you want to go ahead and uh, bookmark Genesis 14, we're going to be there in a second. But here we have this idea, Melchizedek, who was he and what was the point of him? So this morning, what I want us to be looking for, listening for, is this. If the main idea of the book of Hebrews is to show us that Jesus is greater, that is the main idea why or how was the author using Melchizedek to prove us that? Now, again, just the context of Hebrews. Remember, this was a book or a sermon written to preach to the church in, in Rome, that they were Jewish Christians. So, so they had left their Jewish faith to pursue Christ. And so their Jewish family didn't accept them anymore. And they were Christians inside a hostile Rome that was growing more hostile by the day. So just put yourself, you're in a house church, you're suffering, you're being persecuted, you know persecution is coming even more so, you're getting tired, you're getting ready to throw in the towel, forget Christianity, forget Christ, I'm going back to my life as it was before. Why is this good news to them? Why is this encouraging? How is this bringing light to their faith? Why is he using Melchizedek to show us how great King Jesus is? So with all that being said, Let's go to Hebrews 7. Uh, I'm going to read 1 through 10, the entirety of it, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll start working through this passage, understanding why Melchizedek is great and what that means for us today. Hebrews 7, we're going to read verse 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And into him Abraham appointed a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning or beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take the tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though they are also a descendant from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, pays tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So let us pray over this text. Father, we're so grateful that you've given us your word. God, would you help us to see you through this text? Father, would we leave here understanding just a little more of how great you are, how powerful you are. Yeah, thank you for the grace that you've shown us that we can even gather in a space like this. 
that we can publicly proclaim, proclaim your gospel, your word, without fear of persecution or ramifications. And Father, we're grateful for that. Speak to us this morning. It's your name we pray. Amen. Now, there are three observations just straight out the gate that's going to help us diagram this text and kind of work our way through it. The first one we see in verse 4. So if, you, if you're taking notes, if you underline in your Bible, maybe put an asterisk or underline verse 4. The next one that we're going to see is verse 7. And the last one that we're going to see is verse 10. So, so these three are kind of stopping points or kind of we're reading, let's look up real quick and then keep reading, look, look up real quick to get us to understand the argument here that Melchizedek is great and therefore Jesus is greater. Because what I don't want you to walk away from this morning is thinking, man, how great Melchizedek is. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is how to recognize the greatness of Melchizedek and foreshadowed into why Jesus is greater, which we'll elaborate more on the next couple weeks. But look with me at verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. How great he was. So, so with that in mind, let's read verse 1 through 3 to kind of understand the argument, the logic here. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham appointed a tenth of, of everything. He is the first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So if we're going to understand the greatness of Melchizedek, let's just stop and look at some of these titles that he received. Now, king of righteousness. Anyone been called that before? No, all right. The king of Salem, which means king of peace, priest of the most high God. All of this sounds incredibly official. And one of the things that you're going to start to notice as we put these lenses on and work through this passage is how much we recognize Christ's title, Jesus' character, his nature, embodied in Melchizedek. So again, it's constantly pushing us forward. So priest of the Most High God is where we need to stop real quick and, and understand a little bit. Because this title was the only, he's the only man in scripture other than Jesus that had this dual title of priest and king. Now we see that he was king of Salem, which uh, some of you may know was outside of Israel, was outside of the Jewish rule and reign. So this man wasn't even from Jewish descent, but he was a king, but he was also a priest. Now, this dichotomy is great. And one massive example that we see out of this is King Uzziah. Now, that's probably like, if, if you're in college, you probably have a t-shirt, Isaiah 6, here I am, Lord, send me. Anyone have that t-shirt? I'm not calling you out. You don't have to be embarrassed. That's a good, that's a good Bible verse t-shirt to have. But, but that passage starts in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord. You all know this passage. You, you know the thing, right? So I saw the Lord standing in the year that King Uzziah died. If we go back to 2 Chronicles 26, here's how King Uzziah died. This is a fascinating story. You should go back and read it in its entirety. 2 Chronicles 26 tells us that King Uzziah died because he tried to be a priest. Do y'all know this story? 
So he walked in to the Holy of Holies. He walked into the tent of worship and said, I, I can do this thing. Let me light some incense. Give me that lighter. Uh, it's a big, he lit it all up. He was ready to go. And the guys rushed in and said, no, no, you, you can't do that. Uh, you, you, king Isaiah, I know you're king, but you've got to get out of here. He's like, nope, I'm the king. I can do what I want. In that moment, leprosy popped up on his forehead. Boom. So in that moment, the king thought he could do whatever he wanted, and the real king said, nope. God instantly gave him leprosy, and that leprosy killed him. He had to quarantine, not like COVID, legit quarantine, until the day he died. So we clearly see within Scripture that king and priest, those two things do not mix. You're either king or you're priest. You either rule and reign, or as a priest, you offer sacrifices for the people. And Hebrews 5.1 gave us a real quick description of what a priest is. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So here's what the priest does. He intercedes for the men and women to God. So he is the intercessor, he is the in-between, that he takes the prayers to God, that he takes the sin offerings to God, that he takes the, all the normal offerings to God. He's the in-between between us, human mankind, and God. And so we see this king that does both. Now the outline, what a king does, is different than what a priest does. And again, maybe later this afternoon, go back and read Numbers 18 because there's very clear instruction for what a priest can and cannot do. But this story, Melchizedek, precedes Numbers 18, precedes Moses, it precedes the law, it precedes all of that. So even before the law was, Melchizedek was the priest and the king. So, sounds pretty great, but we're about to have this uh, what could have been a conflict that wasn't with a man named Abraham. So verse one we see from this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. From the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So if you have your Bibles, go back to Genesis 14 real quick, just so we can see this. And if you're reading with us as a church chronologically through the Bible, which it's not too late, if you want to hop on with that, you can. If you're reading, this was what we read last Sunday. So this story should sound quite familiar to us. Genesis 14, we're going to read just 17 through 20 real quick. And it's going to shed some light on Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. Genesis 14, we're going to pick it up in 17. After his return from the defeat of Char de Lomier, I did practice that, and the kings of whom with, with him, the king of Sodom went out and met him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God's most high and blessed him, being Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave a tenth of everything. 
So we see Genesis 13, that Abraham and his nephew were sharing property, nephew being Lot. They were sharing land, they were sharing property, and, and their sheep and goats and camels and, and all these things, they were bumping up the landowner or the men that were running the ranches for them were saying, hey, like, there's, there's not enough grass for all of us. So Abraham and Lot talked and said, okay, Lot, why don't you go over that way? You can have all of this land that way. Our animals aren't encroaching on each other's property. So, so Lot takes all of his crew, all of his animals, all of his farm, all of his possessions, and settles right next to Sodom. And so when this war breaks out between all these different kings fighting for territory like they always do, uh, Lot and all of his animals and all of his property gets taken in the process. So because of where he landed, the battle was happening right around that area. All of it gets taken. And then we see in, in Genesis 13 that Abraham goes straight Liam Neeson, right? Picks up the phone, I have a certain set of skills and I'm gonna come get you, right? You've taken Lot, I'm gonna come get him back. Two of you know what I'm talking about. So he takes 318 of his men and they go. And they go off for battle and they get every single piece of Lot's property back. I mean, defeat all these kings, just 318. I mean, they're going against soldiers that number in the tens of thousands. These 318 men, these special forces led by Abraham go in and get all of it back. So they're marching in, they're parading back into, hey, look what we've done, look how great we are. And they walk into Melchizedek. Now you just think about it for a second. If that was you, look what I just accomplished. I'm, I'm not gonna be afraid of anyone. I'm not gonna bow down to anyone. Look how great I am. Look at what I just accomplished. But is that what he does? When he comes face to face with Melchizedek, what does he do? I mean, this is Abraham, right? Are, are we on the same page? Like this is the first song we learned at VBS. Father Abraham had many sons. Have you ever sang a song about Melchizedek at VBS? Probably because you can't rhyme it right? But this is the patriarch. Now, that word means nothing to us now, but patriarch in the Old Testament denotes that there's no one greater than Abraham, that he was the patriarch of our faith. Genesis 12, 13, 14, all the way through 22, over and over again, God is making covenant promises with Abraham. Now, you just think about it for a second. Abraham knows God intimately, has made a covenant with God. He's just destroyed kings of kings. And then he walks into Melchizedek, the patriarch, the man, and instantly he stops. Instantly he's blessed by Melchizedek with the, blood, or with the bread and the wine. And again, you'll start to see these foreshadowings of Christ. And he freely gives 10% of the spoils back freely. Now, now one thing, just sidebar, this has nothing to do with the scripture, but uh, that was lot stuff, <laughs> right? I just, I just chuckled to myself, like, sure, I'll give 10% of my nephew's stuff. That doesn't bother me much. But that's not really what happened. They did it as a spiritual act of worship. He freely gives it to them. Al Mohler puts it this way, Abraham's tithe is one of the most unexpected and fascinating parts of the Old Testament. So Abraham freely giving Melchizedek 10% of the spoils of war is the most fascinating and unexpected parts of the Old Testament. And here's why, there, there, there's no framework for this. 
This is before Leviticus. This is before Deuteronomy. This is before the royal priesthood of the Levites, of Aaron. This is before all of this. Abraham runs into the greatness of Melchizedek. Abraham, the patriarch, the soldier, the warrior, comes face to face with Melchizedek, receives a blessing, and freely gives 10% away. And Abraham saw rightly Melchizedek is more superior. He saw Melchizedek as more superior just as he saw God more superior than that. So Abraham had a framework for this because of who he knew God was, that he could recognize greatness from outside of himself. And when he saw it, he stopped and he gave away. Let's pick it up in verse five. Let's keep reading. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descendants of Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from, the, from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Verse 7, here's the next, let's look our eyes up to the argument. Verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So this theme of priesthood keeps coming out in front of us. It's, it's from the law, from Leviticus, from Deuteronomy. It is part of the law now that the, that the priests of Levi, the ones that God has appointed from the genealogy, you must give them 10% to atone for your sins. You must lay that before them as your spiritual act of worship or you will continue to live in sin because they are descendants from Abraham. But Melchizedek wasn't. He was not part of this lineage. He was not part of the tribe of Levi. He was not part of any of that. Abraham saw that he was superior and freely gave away. It is obvious in this passage that Abraham is inferior because he is blessed by the superior, which is Melchizedek. Now, real quick, and I don't want to jump ahead of ourselves because we'll be covering this in detail over the next couple of weeks. Who are we in this story? Are we the ones that are receiving blessings or are we the ones that are giving blessings? And, and you can even argue, like, I mean, you have a pedigree, you've accomplished a much of great things. I'm not trying to take that away from you. But are you the one blessing or are you receiving blessings? And I, I beat this drum all the time, but, but let me just chase this rabbit one more time. Think about what you're best at. I, I mean, the skills that you have, what really sets you apart, just, just consider it for a second. Now, as you're thinking about this greatness that you have, where does that really come from? Now, I'm not saying that you haven't worked for it. I'm not saying that you haven't pressed into it. I'm not saying that that hasn't taken a lot of time and discipline. But ultimately, where did that gift come from? I mean, I, I, I chuckle is the wrong word. I really lament. But for this sermon, I chuckle listening to these basketball players or these football players that take, man, I just, I just work really hard. I work for everything I've got. No, bro, you were born 7'2". All right, like I'm not saying you haven't worked hard, but when you can touch the rim standing there, you started out a little ahead, right? 
And we can admit that. So even for us, the giftings that we have, at some point, yeah, we've worked hard, but the Lord has given it to us. And there's no doubt about that. So, so no matter what we think we have to offer him, we are always the inferior. Because everything that we have has been a blessing that God has given us. It's not very long in that till we find out, man, we're just bankrupt. We're always receiving, we're always the inferior. So Abraham, slaying these men, coming back with 318 guys, taking everything back, making all these covenants with God, God counting him as righteous. Abraham understands he's inferior. Abraham has the self-awareness to recognize greatness and understand that he is nothing but inferior. Now, let's just zoom out real quick. Think about you in the house church in Rome, listening to this story play out. How strange must it have been to hear your patriarch, the man that you hold to such a high standard that you put on a pedestal, Father Abraham, submitted to and recognizing that he's inferior. Submitted to, hey, I'm Melchizedek greater than I. How strange must it have been for the house church in Rome. So let's keep reading real quick. This point will be brief. Verse eight. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in another case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. So so we can go into great detail here, but I won't. Here's here's what the author is saying. The the preacher is clearly communicating, again, the greatness of Melchizedek, that this was before. So Levi, the, the priest that all priests would come from, the tribe of Levi, wasn't even around when this story happened. He was still, as the Bible would say, in the loins of Abraham. His genealogy hasn't even been descended yet. So this sacrificial system that is created by God to bring sacrifice to our sins, to make us at right standing before him, has not even been created yet. This is how great Melchizedek was, that he was a forerunner in this. And again, let me just read a quick quote from Al Mohler. Why does the writer of Hebrews emphasize this point with such technical care? He wants the Hebrews to see that the Old Testament itself showed that the Levitical priesthood was always meant to give way to something greater. He wanted us to see that the Old Testament Levitical priesthood is always meant to give way to something greater. Now, this is a huge insight into how we should read our Bible, specifically the Old Testament. But there's two massive trains of thought here, right? So, so when we read about Abraham, when we read about what he did, taking 318, going Liam Neeson style, destroying these kings, bringing everything back. Our greatness within ourselves wants to say, I can be like Abraham. I'm gonna train up 318 bros and it's on. Taliban, let's go get them. Doesn't matter. I can, I can do what Abraham did. And we just keep going down the line. David, I can do what David did. Give me some stones, I got this. And we, we just keep going through Solomon right? Moses. We, we read out all of these patriarchs, all these incredible leaders of the Old Testament, and one reading of that would be like, be like David. 
Be like Moses, be like Abraham. You can do this. You can be great like these men. But the proper reading, what Moeller is driving home here, is that all of the Old Testament is supposed to be pushing us towards Christ, the greater Moses, the greater David, the greater Jacob, the greater Isaac, the greater Abraham, the greater Solomon, the greater Nehemiah, the greater everyone. We are not supposed to be like them. This is supposed to push us forward to Christ's coming, that he is the greater of all of them. So for us this morning, here's the question that we need to wrestle with. Do we see Christ as greater? Do we see Christ as more superior? Can we point to the great things in our life and show that they are truly inferior to him? So as Abraham stood face to face with Melchizedek and had to come to grips with this man is greater than me, have we stood face to face with King Jesus and said boldly and confidently that this man is greater than me? Because if we don't see Abraham's example with Melchizedek, then we will never rightly understand our relationship with Christ. Now, I just wanna be aware of where we are in the Bible Belt South Every single one of us, if you have any experience with church, if you would call yourself a Christian, is right now going, yeah, of course, preacher. This entire sermon, 31 minutes and 36 seconds, was all about you trying to convince me that Jesus is greater than me. Man, what a waste of time. Of course I believe that. But Abraham didn't believe it. He showed it. Abraham's right response wasn't lip service. I mean, if you go back and read, Abraham does not offer up lofty words. Melchizedek, you are so great. You're the greatest thing ever. I love singing about your greatness. And once a week, I'll show up for an hour and talk about how great you are. But the rest of my life is about my own. No, he stops in that instant and freely gives, without any framework for this, freely gives a tenth of his spoils. See, we cannot give lip service to the greatness of Jesus unless it does something to us. Unless we truly give our life away. So if we see Christ as more superior, it's naturally gonna lead to right action, to worship, to give, to willingly give all praise and adoration to him and not ourselves. Abraham had something he could boast about, but he didn't in the presence of greatness. We might think we have something we can boast about, but in the presence of greatness, our attitude, our response should be to freely give our lives away to freely recognize the greatness of Christ, the inferiorness of ourselves, and to quit, to stop trying to bolster this image of who we are and worship Christ for who he is. This is why studying the scripture is important. This is why being part of a local church is important. It's why worship is important because all of this, all of this is pushing us as a constant reminder of how great King Jesus is. So, so here's my question this morning. Does your life reflect Abraham? In the presence of the greatness of King Jesus, are we freely giving ourselves away to him? 
Are we freely giving our lives away to him? Do you pretend that you are, but your life would tell a different story? Do you give lip service to the greatness of King Jesus, but your life looks like you're more concerned with the greatness of yourself? Do we sit in this moment where we believe the lies of the world that we're supposed to be great, not Jesus? That that we're supposed to matter, not our God? That why would we freely give something away when it would take away from our greatness? Examine our lives, church. What does the greatness of Jesus require of us? And if the word freely isn't in there, if we're not freely giving away, if we're doing this because it's what's expected of us, that's legalism. That's checking a box. That's doing what we think we need to do to earn the right standing of God. But are we freely giving all back to him? A tenth? I mean, that's, that's great. That's a great starting point. But when we come to the idea that we are truly inferior to a superior King Jesus. I mean, we should offer everything. We should give it all away to him. So Abraham clearly saw the superior and understand that he was inferior when it came to Melchizedek. So for us this morning, let us examine our hearts. Do we truly see Christ as superior in every arena of life? And if we do, our actions will show that as we freely give away our time, our resources, our lives away to King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we put ourselves in this story, we, we have to be honest, or at least I have to be honest. I won't speak on behalf of the church. But if I was in the shoes of Abraham, and I walk up to Melchizedek, I would be far more interested in bragging about what I just accomplished than receiving a blessing from Melchizedek. I would be far more interested that everyone in this town knew what I did with 318 men. I would be far more interested And being the blessing giver, being the one in a power and authority, knowing how people look at me, that I would be from sitting at the feet of the great one, Melchizedek. And if that is the truth, then I am a fool to think I'm not doing that with you, King Jesus that I'm far more eager to tell you all that I've accomplished. And the root of that is, here's all the reasons I don't need you, Jesus. It's an understanding, submitting, and respecting the fact that you are in every single way superior, and I am in every single way inferior. So Father, for me this morning, for us as a church this morning, would you reveal to us our pride? Would you reveal to us our 
arrogance would reveal to us where we think we're better, where we simply think we're more superior than you, or we're more great than you, and we have taken, taken credit for what you've freely given us. Father, would this week look like a week of repentance for us as we get ready to come back next week and, and learn how you, King Jesus, truly are the greater Melchizedek, that you are the greater Abraham, the greater David, the greater Moses, the greater Joshua, all of them, all these men that we would hold to such a high standard, Father, how you are truly greater than all of them. But this week, reveal to us our sins. Reveal to us our pride. Examine what we freely give to you and what that says about how we view you. Are you really superior or not? And Father, as we get to this point this week of repentance, we, we clearly ask for forgiveness. We cannot do this on our own. Father, we know that you are faithful to forgive us. As far as the east is from the west, how quickly our sin will be gone when we confess to you. Father, let us see you rightly. It's only in your name that we pray. Amen.